Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. I'm very excited to be speaking with today's guest on the podcast. Lord Nicholas Stern is an economist at the London School of Economics and the recipient of this year's Carnot Prize, which is the Kleinman Center's annual recognition of distinguished contributions to energy policy. Stern's renown is based in part on a seminal report on the economics of climate change that he published in 2006. That report, the Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change, is widely acknowledged as the first systematic examination of the costs of addressing climate change and of the impact of those costs on the global economy. The Stern Review marked a fundamental shift away from climate change being seen primarily as an issue of science to also being one of economics. The Stern Review's ultimate purpose was to help guide governments in setting impactful and cost-effective policies to slow climate change. Yet more than 15 years after its publication, we find ourselves in a world where emissions and temperatures continue to rise. Stern finds fault in the methods economists use to model climate risks, which, by extension, guide the decision of climate policymakers. In a recent analysis, Stern calls for the tools of economics and the field of economics itself to fundamentally change to meet the enormous challenge of the climate crisis. Nick, great to have you on the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Andy. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on receiving the Carnot Prize from the Climate Center. It's a great privilege. If you look back over the previous recipients, they're a very distinguished crew of uh, women and men. And of course, the name Kano itself is, uh, is, carries great history around thermodynamics, energy, and the way in which uh, societies are transformed by energy. Well, again, we're honored to have you here. You've come in from London. You're the chairman of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and Environment at LSE, the London School of Economics. And I wondered to get started if you could satisfy a curiosity of mine. And that is, you know, the problem of climate change really came to public view, I think, globally in the early 1990s with the, the first IPCC assessment report two years after that, the Rio Climate Summit. And I wonder, can you fill us in, when did economics, climate economics itself, become a discipline? And when did you become involved with the field? Well, there was some early work on uh, economics in right around that time. And uh, Bill Nordhaus at, at Yale, you know, wrote a paper called To Slow or Not to Slow, which uh, published an economic journal. And it was asking the question, once you know that your production is damaging the environment, should you do less of it? Or as he put it, to, you know, to grow, to grow or not, to grow or to slow down. And uh, so it, what, it did come in fairly early um, in uh, a growth sense like that. And it also came in, really it's been there a long time in terms of the externality story, which goes back uh, to Pigou, the famous Cambridge economist of 100 years ago, who said that if you're doing something that uh, is costly, but you don't pay, then you do too much of that. And uh, that in particular, you know, emitting greenhouse gases. So that argument was there, has been there very early in environmental economics and was carried over to climate. So I think those two questions were, the, were there from the beginning, taxing externalities, the so-called Pigovian tax, 
and the question of uh, should you uh, slow down your growth. But both of those things were really resting on the idea that to do things clean was more costly. And it was actually embodied in the original United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change of 92, which essentially said uh, it is going to be more costly, so there's a question of who pays. So that part of climate change economics, if you like, has more or less been there from the beginning. But as you know, I've tried to, been ar to argue that that's actually rather a narrow view, in some ways misleading view, to, uh, to have in relation to climate change if you're thinking about the right kind of policies. I think we're going to get into that conversation about how costly it is to act and yeah. not to act, right? So, yeah. yeah. But basically, I think that picture of to slow growth or not to slow growth and to use uh, carbon taxes or externality taxes, to be fair, that was probably there from the beginning. But I think it's also fair to say it didn't develop very fast from that. So late last year, you published a paper uh, in the title that was A Time for Action on Climate Change and a time for change in economics. And it argues that the traditional economic framework that you started to introduce right now is not really suitable for addressing the type of risk that's inherent in the problem of climate change, and that a reinvention of the discipline is actually necessary. So it seems to me there are two components or sides to this. One is that, and I'd like to ask you a couple questions, interrelated questions here. First, how is climate change different from most of the problems that economics tries to solve. And related to that, what is it about the traditional economic framework that is fundamentally unequal to the task of addressing climate change? First, it's the scale of risk. Uh, we're right on the edge now at uh, 1.1 degrees centigrade of global surface, average surface temperature above the late uh, 19th century, you know, more or less when the Industrial Revolution was getting underway. That's the usual benchmark. Uh, the Holocene period, the period after the last uh, ice age, when we warmed up after the last ice age, eight, nine, ten thousand years ago, has seen roughly plus or minus one. You know, where, and that was the period when we grew up as uh, human beings in the sense of we cultivated uh, grass and turned them into grains, which meant that instead of just hunting and gathering, we planted, we plant, and so you wait. And uh, so you have villages where you, you know where people are stationary whilst they look after their crops, and then they have a surplus, so uh, they don't have to devote all their time and energy to uh, just uh, hunting and 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 gathering. And uh, from that surplus, you know, you can have academics and journalists and uh, and so on. So that's who we are. That's who we became. And that's really a very short period of time. Now, Homo sapiens may be 250 or 300,000 years old, but the way of living, our own civilizations, are young and they're all concentrated in that period. Uh, the places where we live emerged during uh, that period. And what uh, this now involves is a fundamental change in where we can live, how we can live, what we can do. And if uh, it goes much further than where we are, loss of life on a very big scale. You know, two degrees is very dangerous. That's why the Paris target was set well below two degrees. We're probably headed for something like three degrees on current plans. And that would be dr dramatic. We haven't seen three degrees around three million years 
sea levels 10 to 20 meters higher. Potentially existential issue. For very big parts of the world, existential. We don't know what the carrying capacity of the world would be. You know, we're, we're 8 billion or so now, probably headed for another one or 2 billion on top of that. What's the carrying capacity of a three or four degree world? We don't know, but we know enough from the kind of uh, examples I gave to suggest that the carrying capacity of the world could be a lot lower. So, well, how do you go from nine or 10 billion down to, say, five billion, or we don't know what it might be? What's that process look like? I mean, that looks pretty horrific, pretty existential. If many coastal areas where we live, you know, most of our cities are, are uh, close to, for good you know, reasons of ports and where rivers reach the sea and so on, that's where our cities are. And um, many of those would not be able to withstand the kind of battering uh, that would come as a result of climate change, sea level rise, storm surges, hurricanes, storms, and so on. So if hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of people start to move, then the conflict consequences of that would be intense. So what I'm trying to describe is a whole range of risks which are existential for many, which uh, involve conflict for many, which are absolutely transformative. And normal economic policy deals with if we you know raise this interest rate if we raise that tax if we adjust that regulation some people will be a bit worse off some will be be a bit better off our analysis is devoted to saying well who are they by how much and then we have our policy discussion on that basis so this is different in scale and nature of the consequences that we're trying to tackle. And because those consequences are so big, the analytical methods that we use uh, can't just be the traditional ones of a bit extra here and a bit extra, a bit uh, less there for for her or, or him. It has to be about how we think about immense risk. And it also has to be about how do we change in a fundamental way what we do right across the economy. And can we do it fast? Because, you know, the climate is changed by the total of emissions over time. Our emissions are very high. If we don't get it uh, down quickly, then that accumulates to uh, more than is consistent with 2, 2.5 or even 3 degrees. So speed is of the essence. So it's, it's those reasons, really. The magnitude of the risk beyond any kind of policy discussion we normally have. The fundamental nature of the of the change that we have to make, redesigning our cities, redesigning our land use, redesigning our energy and transport systems, huge changes, and the pressure of time. We really are in a hurry. If you put those things together, then the normal kind of shifting of a general equilibrium model as a result of a tweak on a policy can't be the right way to get at this. Well, I don't want to dive too much into the minutiae of this, but one of the things that you point out in the the most recent paper is that the modeling that economists use to understand risks and to eventually uh, guide policymakers on their decisions around climate change and how to address it, it, it has difficulty accounting for the large risk that you've just spoken about. And also, Climate change involves something which is called increasing returns to scale, which per my novice understanding is something that many economists are not so accustomed to using or it's not a normal part of of modeling. 
Can you explain increasing returns to scale and why they pose a challenge to the traditional economic framework? So constant returns to scale says that if you double all your inputs, you double your output. So you can imagine that like replication. You know, you, uh, Diminishing returns to scale says that as you put more input in, then the bit of extra output that you get from each extra bit of input goes down. And if there's some kind of constraint, you know, you've just got one piece of land and you can't change that, you can change other inputs like labor and fertilizer and so on. So if you've got something that's constraining you, then you'd expect to find diminishing returns to scale because there's a, a tightness there that uh, stops you uh, getting those kind of constant returns to scale or replication that I described. Increasing returns to scale says that, well, if you double your in inputs, you more than double your outputs. And there's some natural examples. Um, if you're making a pot, then your costs are roughly associated with the surface area of the pot. But what the pot holds, you know, uh, it goes up like uh, not just the square of the linear dimension, which is the surface area, but the cube of the linear dimension. You know, if, if you just take a you know a square pot that's got a size x, then the volume of the pot is uh, x cubed, but the surface area of the pot is like uh, x squared. So you can see that those kinds of examples are natural increasing returns. To scale. There's also phenomena called learning by doing that um, is, is, is related in the sense that your experience of doing things means you get better so the next one is uh, cheaper than what went before. So there's lots in here which are is could well involve increasing returns to scale and we've seen for example in the cost of solar panels that's come off by, you know, a factor of 10 or more in a decade or so, decreased by 90% or roughly over a decade or so. And that's been, you know, you start to make them on scale as opposed to just in small places. You learn a lot about uh, how to do it on the way. So we've seen increasing returns to scale. And for these very big changes, increasing returns to scale is really quite likely. Now, that's the concept. So what's the problem of increasing returns to scale for economics? Well, it, your first year economic course says, if you are in a market, yeah, and you're a producer, and you can get some price for whatever it is you're making, you'll go on making a bit more each time the cost of a bit more is less than the price you get. So, you know, if you're getting 10 and uh, it costs only five to make a bit more, then you'll make a bit more. And you go on doing that, you'd expand your output up to the point where the cost of the last bit is just equal to that price because that's, that's the point where the last one just about breaks even. So you can see for that kind of model of people behaving in competitive markets as if prices were fixed and then expanding their output in this way can only work can work only if you have diminishing returns to scale because if you've got increasing returns to scale and you see a price in the market 
And if that price stays that way, however much you produce, then you'd go on producing more and more and more, and you wouldn't have an answer to the question. It's infinite. It's infinite. What tells you how much anybody produces? Now, in what we call the economics of industry or industrial economics, you start to tell stories about prices not being independent of what you do. We talk about monopoly and we talk about oligopoly and we talk about, you know, oligopolists competing against each other, where each one is aware of the effect on price. And that's a different kind of uh, model from perfect competition. And it's one that has been really quite interesting and helpful in industrial economics. How do firms behave? The trouble is that when you try to run that at the level of the whole economy, it's not easy to describe increasing returns to scale. And most of the story that people have told in these general equilibrium models have been of uh, diminishing returns to scale or constant returns to scale. So that basic competitive model, if you're building it for the economy as a whole, is difficult to handle unless you have diminishing returns to scale. Just analytically, it's difficult to handle. And what we've got here is very rapid change where we're scaling up. Now, we're transforming the whole electricity industry. We're really scaling up offshore wind. We're scaling up uh, solar. We're looking at different grid systems which can function much better if you've got bigger scale and more people involved. So these are the kinds of changes that we're contemplating. And the simple equilibrium model of the entire economy that we conventionally adopt, it just doesn't fit the nature of the challenge. So the outputs of this are not something that's practically usable by policymakers? Is that the... the I think that the general equilibrium models with underlying growth, which is what's dominated uh, climate change modeling, are not fit for purpose because the assumption of underlying growth couldn't withstand the dramatic changes in the environment that climate change could bring. It wouldn't be, wouldn't simply be, well, you're losing a little bit. It's actually you're transforming what can be done, the nature of the uh, economy. And that, that's of, uh, that's of fun fundamental importance. And similarly, a, an economy with a given structure which works in equilibrium uh, is not the story that uh, we know we have to deal with, which is fundamental fast change on scale. Can you tell me a little bit about the modeling that you did in 2006 for the Stern Review? What were the inputs into that model? What were the outputs or the outputs that you expected? And how do those outputs translate into policy decisions? And I want to ask one other important component of this is the idea of, of guardrails. So all of the decision-making and the model has to work within this guardrail, which is the guardrail of addressing climate change, slowing it down before we have irreparable damage. The the Stern Review was embarrassingly long. It was about... 700 pages? It was about 700 pages. You've read them all, Andy. And um, we looked at the problem from the point of view of the big risks of technological progress, the ways in which market failure occurred, and so on. And that was, if you like, in many ways, the centerpiece of what we were doing, building up that story. We did have, um, because it was a stern review, we had a review of the modeling. And in so doing, we used some of the standard models. 
which were, a lot of those were these so-called integrated assessment models. So one chapter did use those, and we focused particularly on some aspects of uh, uncertainty. But the formal modelling of the whole economy was based on that literature, because at that time it was uh, it was a review. But the bigger story in the Stern Review, where I, I think we were perhaps a bit more original, we built up the whole set of challenges. We tried to talk about the magnitude of the risks. We tried to talk about uh, technical progress and uh, and how you encourage the kind of technical progress that, that you need, how you encourage the kind of investment you need. But looking back, I think that we underestimated the risks. Looking back, we didn't go far enough down the road of uh, taking on immense risks. We could have been still stronger on guardrails. So what I've come to see in the 15 years or so since the Stern Review is that this is a story about transformation with enormous potential for growth and discovery. But in looking back, the Stern Review was, I think, at the end of the period where that kind of modeling might have been hmm. appropriate, perhaps even beyond the end. The modeling that goes back to Nordhaus in yes. 1990 or so? Yes. Mm -hmm. So when, when Bill was setting up that kind of... Uh, challenge, he said, look, here's a new thing to think about. How do we fit it in with growth theory? How do we fit it in with the theory of externalities? It was a reasonable way to start, actually. But by the time you know we are now at 30 years since Bill's original piece, I think it's fair to say that uh, uh, we now see that the kind of risks that are at issue here are just too big for that kind of modelling. So, the guardrail is uh, an attempt to grapple with the idea that the risks that we're inflicting on ourselves and those who come later are immense and uh, that the simple cost-benefit framework of who benefits, who loses, by how much, how do you balance those things is not going to work. So you're going to have to try to get your head round the question of just how much risk could we possibly take and uh, what's reasonable to accept, knowing that the precise consequences of what we are generating for future generations are very difficult to be precise about. So that's the kind of judgment that you have to make. So you have to look at the consequences as best you can, knowing that there are immense risks out there that's very hard or impossible to quantify. But knowing that loss of life on an immense scale could well be part of that story. And then you look at what you can do, yeah, and how much you can bring that down. And you come on to what it looks like when you do work to, to bring them down. And you ask yourself the question, how much is too dangerous to handle? And that is the guardrail. Now, it, it's what you know, we would in, in, in philosophy call a consequentialist approach, yeah? as opposed to approaches about, that approaches about you know, Aristotle, what it means to be good, or you know, Kant, or what is a categorical imperative about behavior. They're, they're different from simply consequentialist approach. But economics has generally followed consequentialism 
you know, it's generally asked the question, what are the consequences of our actions? And we judge our actions according to their consequences. So what I'm describing is still a consequential approach, but it's not a narrow, as it were, welfareist or cost-benefit approach in the, in the usual sense, because the risks are just so big. So you try to form a view, thinking about the risks, thinking about what you can do, and say, we must try to prevent ourselves going beyond that point. You know, you, you sometimes, when you have dangerous cliffs, you'll rope off those cliffs. You will have seatbelts uh, in cars to limit the uh, risk. You know, you'll have, um, you'll have cut-off points in, cut-off points in air pollution beyond which you should not go. And all of those examples of guardrails, in this case, of course, we're playing for risks which are so much bigger than those other risks. But I think we've found as human beings trying to take decisions together that guardrails actually are a helpful way of thinking about managing the management of uh, very big risks. And that's why I think in, in international discussion, we've set targets like well below two degrees or, or as, a, as in Paris or 1.5 degrees, which was the central uh, target or limit that people were thinking about in Glasgow in November of, uh, of 2021, COP26. So in a sense, the international community and public discussion have come to an approach which is like that. And economics, I think, is catching up in some ways in saying, well, yeah, that's what people have said is reasonable. That's, that seems to be a, a judgment that people can come to collectively. So what's the underlying uh, structure of models or ideas? Models may be too strong. The structure of theories and ideas that could point us towards that kind of approach. So it's very interesting what you just said. So you mentioned the Stern Review came out at the end of this period where, and I'm going to go back to a word that I used, a simplified word, uh, a, an incrementalist approach to solving or addressing the issue of climate change. And then we realize from that point till today that we've got a much more dramatic uh, problem that, that, that needs to be addressed. One of the interesting things that comes to mind as I'm thinking about this is it appears to me that markets were intended to be the lever or the tool to solve many of these problems. Markets, I would assume, guided by policy. But you have said that climate change is the biggest example of a market failure, and I assume not just was, but continues to be. Can you explain the concept of market failures and how your thinking may have changed from 2006 to today on the role, the capability of markets, and the role of governments to guide the policy that, that shapes those markets? Yep. Market failure arises when markets do not signal the costs associated with decisions. So, you know, if you're producing something, you know, you expect to pay for the raw materials, for the fuel, for the rent of the land, and you expect to pay for what you use. But in the case of climate change, you're not paying for the damage you do to others. So that's an example of a market uh, failure. If, if, if you make very loud noises on your radio and you disturb the person next door, then you're thinking about the cost of the radio and whatever is involved, or your subscription to Spotify or whatever it might be, but you're not thinking about the damage that it does to the person next door. So that's a market failure where there's a cost that is not, uh, that is real, but is not faced by the person who is driving that 
decision. That's an example of a market failure. And here, this is, of course, a very big one because we all do it and the consequences are uh, potentially immense. That's why it's the biggest market failure the world has seen. So, But economics has quite a lot to offer in those circumstances about how do you manage market failures. What I think I've come to see still more as time goes by is that that's not the only one. You've got uh, R&D, which is extremely uh, important. And of course, ideas are public goods in the sense that anybody can pick them up and use them and uh, you don't necessarily have to have to pay. You've got problems in capital markets where it, they really don't handle risk uh, all, all that well, although they, they, they do it to some extent. You've got all the problems of networks like public transport, electricity grids, where what one person does in those networks affects what happens to other people. You have to manage those through public policy. They're all they're important questions about information. What is in what you buy? You don't know unless there's some public policy that requires you to be told. And of course, there's air pollution, uh, um, not just air pollution, but extremely important. So what I think we've seen uh, develop much more strongly, and certainly it's influenced me, is this whole range of market failures. And indeed, market absences, we, don't, we can't buy the technologies that we reckon we're likely to need because we don't quite know what they are 20 years from now. So they're big market failures and market absences. But my reaction to that is not to abandon the markets, but do your best to bring policies which deal with those market failures. If you abandon markets, then you know you put enormous constraints on control systems which are supposed to know uh, everything and we tell people what to do. And our experience of abandoning markets uh, is not very good. I mean, look at the uh, what happened in the in the former uh, Soviet Union. Look how much more productive China got when it went from a fully controlled economy to a much more laissez-faire economy. So abandoning markets is, is, is not the way forward. F trying to get the markets to work better and benefit from the tremendous entrepreneurship that there is out there, that's the way forward. So what would the prescription be for markets to better support innovation, to better manage risk, as you just mentioned? Uh, carbon pricing is the, is the most apparent one, clearly, but are, are there Again, prescriptions for solving those yeah, problems. Yeah, carbon pricing very important because mm -hmm. that's a basic market failure, and it, and it can be pretty powerful. And some economists say that's the that's the whole solution right there. Right? Yeah, but that's just wrong. You know, because it 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 ignores all these other market failures that are there, and it ignore, ignores increasing returns and uncertainty. So some things you can do, like you can say, as we've done in the UK, you will not sell internal combustion engine vehicles after 2030, or in Europe, 2035. Or you say that we will make our whole energy, uh, make our whole electricity system zero carbon by 2040. Now, those, those are very powerful market signals. You're not telling people what is going to be the right alternative to the internal combustion engine. You're just saying you can't do that because it's so bad and so dangerous and so damaging. So you're letting the markets determine what it is that comes forward to replace it. We have some ideas what it will be, but the markets will determine what it will be. So very clear, strong signals like that give people the confidence when there's lots of uncertainty and increasing returns to scale to go off and uh, do their thing, do find and be entrepreneurial and create. So that's the kind of ways in which markets are going to be the big solution to all this. And it's going to be private investment on the back of discovery and innovation that's going to drive us forward. You know, there's one other issue I think it's really important to bring up uh, as well, and that's justice. And I want to ask, how do 
wealth and racial inequality change the context in which these systems operate? Well, rich people, because they consume more, uh, emit far more greenhouse gases than poorer people. Africa's contribution to greenhouse gases is pretty minimal. United States probably emits per capita something like 10, you know, five, eight, 10 times uh, what India does. And so we have an injustice in that the people who are the biggest movers of the problem, biggest causes of of, of the problem and not the people who suffer the biggest consequences. It's the, it's poor people uh, who are hit earliest and hardest. It's children and women who are hit uh, particularly uh, hard by, by climate change in all sorts of uh, ways. Um, you know, they're often the last people to, they often find it very difficult to move uh, quickly when there are, uh, you know, extreme, extreme weather events and, and so on. So um, what you've got is an injustice that the people who cause the problem, of course they will suffer, but the people who suffer much more earliest and hardest are poorer people. And there's a great inequity there. And of course there's an inequity across generations is that uh, the, the people who are going to be living 30 or 40 years from now are not the people who've emitted the greenhouse gases which are causing their problem. So there is there are great injustices in terms of inequality and great injustice in terms of damages done to people who are not responsible for the problem. Let me ask you a final question here, if I may. Are you optimistic that the reframing of economics that you're talking about will occur and that the solutions it will suggest are within our grasp? I think e- economics is a very rich subject. And much of the issue, many of the issues I've been describing here, increasing returns to scale, uncertainty, discovery, innovation, there's lots in economics about that. So what we have to do is to take our problem, uh, look at transforming cities, look at transforming energy, look at transforming transport, look at transforming land, and say, how do we change these big systems? What collection of policies is going to help us change those big systems? And then we have to stand back and say, given all these bits... What's our judgment about how to put them all together? I wouldn't try to force the whole thing through into one big model, but I would use a whole collection of rich models, ways of thinking about it, analytical approaches from economics. And we're going to have to develop some more along the way. But we've got to be clear. It's immense risk, it's fundamental change, and it's real time. Nick, thanks for talking. And once again, congratulations on receiving the Carnot Prize. It's a real pleasure to be here. If I look at the predecessors, they're a wonderfully distinguished group of women and men. And uh, Carno, a giant in this whole history, and Pennsylvania, a wonderful university. Today's guest has been Lord Nicholas Stern, chairman of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics. Did you know that transcripts of all Energy Policy Now episodes are available on the Climate Center's website? It's true. The website has a lot of other useful information, too, including blogs, policy research, and a list of upcoming events from the Center. To make it easy to keep up with us, subscribe to our monthly newsletter on our site or to our feed on Twitter. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day. 